Well, Father Michael Rozier, thanks so much for joining us on AMDG. How are you doing today? Great, Mike. Uh, doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, just great to, to chat with you. Uh, so I invited you to come on for a conversation today uh, because of your unique background, both as someone who is a, you know, a, a Jesuit priest and also a, a public health professor, a public health expert, someone who has devoted a lot of your professional life to this. As again, we're in the middle of this pandemic, is thought let's get let's get Father Michael on to see kind of what he's thinking about and and uh, what we might have to kind of reflect on or draw on as we kind of as a community move into this uh, this time. So uh, yeah, maybe we could just start if you tell me a little bit uh, about yourself and your background. Sure, happy to. Although the word expert scares me, especially when uh, we're in moments like this. I, I spend a lot of time doing this. That is, I will admit that. Sure. Um, yeah, so I entered the Jesuits in 2003, um, was ordained in 2014, um, and uh, during my time in society, uh, I've been blessed to be missioned to various things related to public health. Uh, so I had an interest in healthcare before entering the Jesuits, um, thought I would go to medical school as a Jesuit, quite honestly, but uh, on a novice experiment in Belize, Central America. Uh, my eyes opened up to the possibility of public health, and it has um, been that way ever since. So, um, yeah, I did a couple degrees uh, in international health and then health policy. Um, you know, I've worked um, for the World Health Organization and worked throughout Latin America on public health issues. Uh, and uh, fortunately, the society has been incredibly supportive uh, of my work in this area. We've been hearing about public health, a phrase that's used, seeing different public health figures on TV. Just like what, how do you describe what is public health though? Like if you're telling someone or who doesn't know too much about it, I realize I use it, but like, I'm not sure if I could like give you a good definition. Sure. Absolutely. So I think the easiest way to understand it is uh, population level medicine. So we all know what medical care essentially is. Um, diagnosing uh, and treating individuals. And so public health attempts to do that at the population level. So looking at um, communities, entire populations to, to assess what risk factors for disease are there, what protective factors might enhance health, and then to develop essentially a treatment plan, whether that's changing behaviors, instigate, uh, initiating policies, um, whatever we can do to uh, increase the likelihood of health within an entire population. There are obviously so many different issues that would fall under that umbrella. But I imagine right now, most public health people are just like really spending a lot of time with uh, the coronavirus. What are we supposed to do with this? It's kind of unprecedented time. So what has been on your heart and mind these days, kind of bringing both of your vocation or, you know, both parts of your vocation as a public health professional and, and, a, and a priest into this? Yeah, absolutely. So um, there is no doubt that all of our attention uh, in public health uh, has been turned to COVID-19. Um, I'm actually teaching uh, Introduction to Global Health uh, at St. Louis University this semester, if you can believe it. Um, and week one of the semester, I asked my students what was going on in Wuhan in the Hubei province. And at that point in time, I think maybe two hands had, uh, were raised. Uh, and I said, I promise you by spring break, uh, we're going to be talking about this in a more serious way. Mm. I did not, quite frankly, anticipate it escalating uh, as quickly as it did, uh, that I'd now be teaching the CAC class remotely for the rest of the semester. Um, but yeah, uh, I 
um, I'm engaged with this, you know, as a, as a public health professional, but then also walking with a lot of my students um, through their own questions and, and making sure it's broken open uh, in the right way for them. You know, I think um, you know, as a public health professional, there's certainly the kind of epidemiology and policy that is really uh, important for us to get right. Um, but I think where my heart is, as you asked, is uh, all those people who are particularly vulnerable uh, at this moment in time. So I think of, um, you know, my, my grandma is in an assisted living facility and there are so many people in nursing homes uh, across the country who are not only at increased risk for uh, the virus, but now are more socially isolated than ever before. I think about people across the country who are incarcerated. We know we have the highest incarceration rate of any developing country, and they also are at particular risk for this disease. Or I think of school children having to forego uh, a lot of the meals that they would be getting during this time. I mean, the list goes on and on. And so one of the things that public health does, I think it, it kind of raises our attention to health disparities, health inequities, and those people who are vulnerable. That's kind of constitutive of the discipline of public health. Um, and at this moment, you know, uh, my interest as a public health professional and certainly my interest as a priest and somebody who wants to care for people um, is very much aligned in that regard. I think about those communities that you mentioned and so many others who are particularly vulnerable, vulnerable you know, including folks who don't have like stable home situations or, you know, the idea of increased domestic violence in the case of these kind of lockdowns, you know, people are in homes together longer, just the rates of that go up, the people have been suggesting. Um, I think like maybe because this seems to be cutting across and affecting everyone that like, it's even more likely to just kind of forget about some of those communities. Cause like, let's take care of us, like me and mine. And, uh, the, you know, thinking about, you know, the, important quote unquote important or powerful famous people who have, you know, have gotten sick so far and those numbers will continue to go up. How like, it's hard to be like compassionate when you also are feeling like there's a threat right behind you, right? Like how do you kind of balance all those things? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think what this is um, putting into fuller relief for everybody is that, you know, we're, we're all always vulnerable there's none of us are kind of invincible to uh, any kind of tragedy, uh, whether it be illness or anything at any point in time. Um, yet this kind of puts it into fuller relief at a personal level. Um, but it's also uh, raising, I think, our awareness, hopefully, uh, to the vulnerabilities of uh, the people all around us. You know, I often, you know, driving down the street or, uh, you know, uh, when when you pass by somebody or they're getting in your way, you forget that they might be going through something really significant. Uh, and I think this is just raising our awareness that everybody's going through something pretty significant almost any, every moment of the day, whether it's in the midst of this COVID-19 outbreak or, quite frankly, before and after this. Um, and so hopefully um, one of the positive outcomes of this is to make us slightly more compassionate um, people. I think one of my concerns as a priest is that uh, how, how do we encourage that rather than the opposite? Because the real risk there is that it sows division and discord and self-interest, uh, which we do see that. Um, but 
I think we can call ourselves and call each other to a different place in all of this. Yeah, I today the work so we're talking on St. Patrick's Day and in our neighborhood um there was like a move uh kind of communicated online that like uh th- in order to like support families with young kids a bunch of neighbors printed out pictures or colored pictures of shamrocks to hang on the window to kind of have this like socially distanced scavenger hunt my wife's already been out uh, with our kids on a walk to like go and count these things right and so like oh there's like these little signs of neighborliness things that wouldn't have happened before mm-hmm. I find that heartening that like yeah. maybe there is like some solidarity, but I also feel like, Oh my gosh, we're still like, we're so early. We don't know what's coming and Like let's check back in, in in two months and see like how people are seeing each other. And um, yeah. if there's like where this, you know, the, the, the suspicion is growing mm-hmm. or that, or the, that division, have there been like, even in other public health things you've studied or kind of in your own reflection, how, like, how do you overcome that? Or how do you face that? The sense that like, there could be some real, division uh within communities here um people angry at each other suspicious of each other um yeah what was the response to that yeah um so actually you know when, when you say that we're so early in this um it's almost framed as in uh you know it, it could get much worse but i think of it as in we're so early in this you know like we are just figuring this out and so my hope is that we're just figuring out how to live with each other in this new way, whether it's within our household or within our neighborhood or within our city town. Um, and like anything else in our life, kind of even individual habits that we try to build up, it takes us time to figure out, you know, uh, how am I going to eat healthy on a more regular basis? How am I going to exercise on a more regular basis? I think it's going to take time. How do I kind of love people from a distance? In a, in a different way? How do I support people? How do I connect with people? And so, yeah, we are early in this, but uh, I, I think that is kind of a, a hopeful turnabout that we're going to get better at this for sure. And so if people are frustrated right now and don't really know how to deal with it, um, absolutely understandable. Um, but, the, you know, the kind of now actually pivoting to, to your question, how, how might we think about it is that um, we build up practices. We learn what to do in response to something. And we as a society really haven't had to do this, um, you know, for an extended period of time. I was in uh, Boston when the Boston uh, Marathon bombing occurred, and we had to shelter in place for about 48 hours, which was a big deal at that moment. Now people in the Bay Area are sheltering in place for the next three weeks. And so, um, I mean, I, I hope that, you know, in this era of crowdsourcing and uh, different ways of connecting, that it's actually easier to do this now than it would have been 25, 30 years ago. I think about some of the, the different concepts that are important in Catholic teaching kind of being lived out now and being called to, as you're saying, like we're being called to kind of sacrifice and to do things differently and think about like a Catholic teaching, like the common good, that when we think about how we order a society or what we do is that we don't, it's not like the greatest good for the greatest number, but that we have to have this special concern for for those who are most vulnerable. And that's how we set up our society. And again, we're seeing that now with these requests, like, hey, don't go out, like give up some of your personal freedoms, especially say, hey, young adults, maybe people who are not as at risk as others, 
stop going to bars because that's like for the good of people who are more vulnerable for older, older people. And I think that is like this kind of foreign sense for a, a lot of us, especially like in the West or in the States where we really value our own autonomy. But to me, it's like this kind of crystal clear illustration of what the common good is, is that we give up some of these individual liberties we enjoy for the good of the community. Um, and that seems to me to be like a very, again, a very Catholic thing. Absolutely. I, I think there are several principles in, in Catholic social teaching that uh, for one point in time might be fairly theoretical and now are very much lived out in the concrete. So um, you mentioned the common good, you know, how we structure our society to, to foster um, the well-being of all. You know, I, I think of uh, solidarity as well, um, that it's not just um, – me and you, but it's us, that we are bound together in ways that we often don't appreciate. And uh, if there was ever a time to appreciate that we are bound together, whether we want to be or not, uh, this this is one of those moments. Uh, I think also that option for the poor, um, that it's not that the people in the nursing homes or people in prisons, or as you mentioned, people in domestic violence situations are better, you know, morally than anybody else, but they're the ones that we need to be thinking about the most during this time um, because they are in situations that are most at risk for degrading their dignity uh, and the, and the God given dignity that um, that uh, is so constitutive to who they are. So one of the really concrete ways that we've seen these Catholic teachings lived out throughout our kind of church history, especially here in the United States is Catholic healthcare that they're, often sisters, religious sisters, priests, lay people, others, but uh, kind of acting under the umbrella of the church, seeing like responding to these needs, especially accompanying the most vulnerable, like that is an important way we put our faith into action. So what what do you know about the kind of Catholic healthcare history as you've kind of studied uh, all of this stuff and maybe could give us like a little bit of a, a primer for those of us who aren't as familiar? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, um, Healthcare has always been a part of who we are as uh, as a faith community. Um, I mean, early on in the Roman Empire, when there were plagues, uh, people who had resources fled to the countryside uh, to be away from the infections. But it was the Christians who stayed in the cities and cared for uh, the victims of disease. And it was actually caring for those victims of disease during those moments when other people fled uh, that converted a lot of people to Christianity. Uh, it was the monasteries scattered throughout Europe um, that became points of um, respite and care for weary pilgrims moving throughout the continent and became repositories of knowledge around medicine as that was being built up over the centuries. Uh, and kind of more particularly to the United States, um, the religious women, uh, Ursuline Sisters, 1727, uh, New Orleans, uh, landing and doing kind of the first assessment of what's going on. Uh, what they saw needs for, need for was education and healthcare, And that's why we have this vast network of Catholic healthcare and Catholic education, largely because of these religious women. Um, and it was them responding to needs that nobody else would. And so that, that's what I find so compelling about the history of Catholic healthcare in this country is that much like the early Christians. So when the United States had cholera epidemics, which happened several times between the 1830s and 1860s, 
um, the people who were ostensibly the public health agents left. It was too dangerous. Those religious sisters who stayed and cared for those victims of cholera outbreaks during the Civil War, um, it was religious women who were providing nursing care for soldiers on both sides. Uh, the first hospitals um, uh, in this country were not for people who were had insurance. Even though we imagine hospitals now for people with insurance, it was the exact opposite. It was if you had wealth, a physician would come to your home. And if you didn't have any wealth, then you had to go to these houses of dying, essentially, uh, houses of uh, compassionate care. And it was the religious women who were running those. And so even though that now that idea of hospital has been inverted, uh, when they were originally founded in this network that we now build upon, it was those people who didn't have anything else came to these women and they got cared for. Um, and that, that to me is kind of the uh, absolute foundation of what we are doing. And it's not a new invention. It's been, it's been done since uh, the early Christian communities. And, but we're always reinventing ourselves. We're always trying to figure out, okay, what does that look like today at this moment in time? Um, and, you know, I think it is put into even particular relief uh, during this time in the United States. So given your, your background, and we've been talking about this, again, just so much kind of going through your head, I'm sure like all of us, just so much information coming in. I know you, you did work on a, a piece for American Magazine, and we'll be able to, to share that through our, uh, our social media networks. But as you sat down to kind of to write that, what were some of the, the things going through your head, things that you wanted to kind of get out there and share uh, specifically through that article? Yeah, thanks. Uh, so the um, the America piece, I, I really tried to avoid uh, the, the public health science part of my life uh, because there are a lot of people, quite frankly, who are far more expert than me uh, on kind of designing epidemic curves and um, deciding what exactly social distancing measures we need. Uh, my reflection was really based on um, what might this uh, moment of social distancing, uh, quarantine, isolation, what might it uh, do to who we are as human beings and what we're doing uh, as a human community? So kind of referencing what I mentioned earlier, one of my concerns, quite frankly, is that um, we, um, we allow this to kind of tear at our humanity in ways that we don't anticipate. If we, I get that the other person right now is a threat, they're a potential carrier of this virus. But that can't be the primary way we look at them. You know, we have to look at them as our fellow sister and brother, somebody, quite frankly, who is vulnerable to the disease in the same way that we are, rather than seeing them as a threat. And so peace is really about how do we maintain our humanity as individuals and our human community, um, despite being asked to be with each other, to belong to each other uh, in very different ways. Yeah, just really uncharted stuff we're figuring out. Um, and I'm sure those are things, as you mentioned, on your students' minds, on their families' minds, and, and maybe they see you again as this kind of dual role person to kind of be seeking out. Uh, what has been your message uh, to them? Like, is there, what are their messages of there's, there's comfort with also like kind of reasonable concern, right? Like we, I trying to think about like, yeah, how do I approach this spiritually? I want to be informed. I want to be concerned and take proper action without panicking. Um, 
yeah, like what's been your message to some of those to students or families who've reached out to you? Yeah, so I mean, one of the things that uh, I try to encourage students or whoever uh, I'm in conversation with about this is paying attention to what's really moving us. Uh, and this is kind of one of the uh, key insights of Ignatian spirituality. And, and, and that is not just kind of rationally processing what's going on, but how do we pair uh, our, our rational selves with our emotive, you know, psychosocial selves as well. Uh, and pay attention to the way that the evil spirit might be tempting us to kind of other somebody, to be fearful of somebody. Uh, and how might the good spirit be inviting us to a different place, a new way of loving people that we hadn't imagined yet? Um, and so trying to pay attention to, um, you know, our own emotions, our fears um, during this time, but then also, I think, really appreciating that other people have tremendous complexity in their lives right now as well. So all the stuff that we know we are dealing with, just continuing to remind ourselves that other people uh, are dealing with it as well. You know, and I, I quite frankly, um, am struggling with this as, as a professor because, you know, I want my class to be a certain way. I want them to do us an assignment in a particular way. I want to have a deadline. I want them, you know, I, I have the way that I think it should be done. And I want, I want to hold that bar high and I have to keep reminding myself, Michael, these these students of yours have had their lives turned upside down uh, in ways that you don't know and often don't appreciate. And so uh, how can I, quite frankly, continue to remind myself of it's not just me who's dealing with these new complexities, but it's everyone that I'm encountering uh, who I'm asked, quite frankly, to care for. Well, Father Michael, really appreciate your, your taking the time and, and offering those thoughts. I hope we can check back in with you uh, in a few weeks as these things uh, keep moving, uh, just for even yeah. quick updates. I, just, I think you bring, a, again, a unique perspective uh, at this time. And yeah, uh, know of my prayers for you and your community there and students and appreciate uh, your prayers for, for us as well. Thank you. Prayers to your family. And uh, I do hope we can check back in. And I hope we have... Um, that kind of sense of growing humanity that we do live in into this very well together. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Dara Sump, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me, Mike Jordan-Lasky. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at WeAreTheJesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. <laughs>